0: Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 4.19, The Hutchinson Letters Crisis. The Imperial Crisis, our subject for the last 15 episodes, can be divided into three distinct periods. Each one of these periods would mark a critical junction for the colonies, as they inched closer and closer to 1775. These phases were each critical for explaining what was coming. The first phase lasted from 1763 until 1767, and was defined by the first parliamentary acts that attempted to better control the colonies. The biggest moment of this phase was the Stamp Act, and the widespread mob action that would help define it. In this moment, the colonies realized for the first time that they could control imperial policy. The colonists, turning to mob violence, certainly shocked and concerned Parliament. However, it was their use of non-importation that would have the biggest impact. Nervous merchants back in London pressured Parliament to back off the Unpopular Stamp Act. Parliament repealed the Stamp Act and replaced it with the Declaratory Act, making clear that they were still the ones calling the shots. The colonists hoped that this was mere face saving and that the matter was closed. As they will learn, that was not going to be the case. The second phase would begin in 1768 with the passage of the Townsend duties and lasted until the end of the Boston Massacre trials. This phase saw a return of non importation spread throughout the colonies. However, It is distinct from that first phase in that outright mob action was generally discouraged, though it still did occur from time to time. This portion of the imperial crisis can be seen as a time of maturation over the entire process. While there was widespread non-importation of goods throughout the colonies, those colonies failed to coordinate exactly what that meant, leading to the eventual breakdown of the system important lessons were learned from this period, lessons that would help define the final stage of the crisis. Again, as was the case after that first phase, there was a period of relative calm that settled in as people tried to get back to business as usual, tired as they were over the ongoing ordeal. Following both the first two stages, it is important to remember that even during those times where things seemingly had calmed down, there was still turmoil and resistance. Recall the fight in New York over the Quartering Act following the Stamp Act and the burning of the Gatsby that occurred between the repeal of the Townsend duties and the coming uproar over the Tea Act. Beginning today, we are going to head into the third phase of the Imperial Crisis. This phase is going to last until April 19th, 1775, at which point the imperial crisis will come to a sudden and dramatic end, as it will transform into the American Revolution. Before we return to our narrative, I want to start today by looking at the question of the inevitability of the American Revolution. As we head into this final phase of the imperial crisis, it probably is not a spoiler that this phase will conclude with the outbreak of the war. As we move closer and closer to that war, a question comes up regarding when the Revolutionary War became an inevitability. This is not the first time we have asked this very question, and indeed it has been something that I've been touching on at least some, going all the way back to our first season. When looking through hindsight, there are clues of the coming conflict littered throughout colonial history. In Massachusetts, for example, the decision to have the company headquarters in Massachusetts itself, and not back in England, allowed the colony to have little oversight from an early point. In Virginia, a colony long thought of as being more friendly towards the crown, Bacon's Rebellion reminds us that even there, governmental overreach was a very real concern. Virginia had a better relationship with London than did Massachusetts, to be sure. Yet even there, it is always clear that the colonists enjoyed their autonomy and were not interested in losing it. This is readily apparent during those years of English occupation following Bacon's rebellion. Throughout the colonies, pragmatic needs for governance had led to the colonial assembly becoming a linchpin of civic society. British interference with those assemblies was seen as being a violation of the colonists Natural Rights as British Citizens. There are a lot of these examples, and I'm not going to rehash them all right now. I have spent the last 127 episodes talking about just that. I have a few times compared it to a long highway, leading from the colonies being founded to the revolution. The colonies had long been traveling down that road, yet there have always been hundreds, if not Thousands of exits. Places where different decisions could have been made that would have altered events so that the war would have been prevented. As we move into the third phase of the crisis, we are really going to start to see those storm clouds gathering, unlike we ever have before. By the time that we get to the back half of 1774, at least in Massachusetts, there is a clear buildup for war going on. Both sides are preparing for a conflict that is seeming virtually certain to be coming. The British were moving through Massachusetts collecting gunpowder, whereas the colonists were busy collecting guns and artillery. Seeing this buildup in Massachusetts would suggest that the colonies are well on the path to war by the end of 1774. However, that brings us to a problem that can easily cloud our judgment when looking at the imperial crisis. One that I will admit being guilty of as well. There is a tendency to look at the imperial crisis with too much attention being placed onto Massachusetts, and really onto Boston itself. Massachusetts is, for better or worse, at the very tip of the spear. So many of the critical events on the march to war happen in Massachusetts. We have seen this already, and we are going to continue seeing it as we move forward. When the war does come, it will strike in Massachusetts first, in Lexington and Concord. As a result of this, there is a tendency to place the majority of the focus of the run-up to the revolution on Massachusetts over the other colonies. None of this is to suggest that the other colonies are doing nothing, because we know that is not the case. The imperial crisis is something that was widespread and directly was affecting all of the colonies. New York had led the fight against quartering. Virginia had shown a more radical side both in regards to the initial Stamp Act and then last time when we talked about the early adoption of the Committees of Correspondence we are going to talk about the early reaction to the Tea act which, incidentally, is going to occur first not in Massachusetts, but in New York and Pennsylvania. We talked about the fact that during the Stamp Act, there were demonstrations throughout all of the colonies, not just in Boston. Furthermore, if you want more evidence, non-importation agreements existed throughout the colonies, and would have indeed floundered had they been more localized. In fact, what ultimately did the Townsend non-importation agreements in was when the colonies decided not to renew them. Once that happened, the entire thing quickly evaporated as nobody was interested in putting themselves at an economic disadvantage to any of the other colonies. The fact is, Not all of the colonies are in the same place at the same time. Massachusetts has long been where we have seen the majority of the outright confrontation. The radical element in Boston has long been driving events within that colony. Other colonies, while reacting to events, occasionally violently, were not as far along in the process come the events at Lexington and Concord. Trying to figure out when the revolution becomes inevitable is a difficult, if not impossible, task. Because there are different moments in all of the colonies where it will become a reality. All of the colonies are going to ultimately get there. We know that. However, they are not all going to get there at the exact same moment. As we move through these next several episodes, I plan to put some extra focus on the colonies at large to help determine where they all were sitting mentally as we move through the next few years. Okay, with that, let's head back to our narrative. During our last episode, we saw the beginnings of what would become a new and ultimately final phase of the Imperial Crisis begin. When we left off, Samuel Adams had called for a new wave of resistance, as a result of the empire's decision to change how colonial officials were paid. This helped to fuel the expansion of those committees of correspondence, which had now begun to proliferate throughout the colonies. These committees marked a major point in the growing communication network, within both the individual colonies, and further out, linking all of the colonies closer together. Internal changes were also taking place amongst the Boston Whig leadership. As an aside, as I just did use the term Whig, I want to take a moment to define that term, as you will likely be seeing it more and more as we get closer to the Revolution. The American Whigs, or just Whigs, as used in this context, is that group opposed to British imperial policies and later will be the group in support of the outright separation from Great Britain. They are opposed by the Tories, who are acting in the furtherance of said British policies. So, Samuel Adams would be a Whig, as compared to Thomas Hutchinson, who was a Tory. These groups go by a lot of names, and by the time the revolution comes, you will see groups like the Whigs also being referred to as being the Patriots. Likewise, the Tories will often be referred to as Royalists, and the more common, Loyalists. When we come across a mention in a source where somebody is being accused of being a Tory following the outbreak of the war, it is the same as calling them a Loyalist. Although Samuel Adams continued to be the leader of the Massachusetts Whigs, there was a cast of new players coming in, while others were on their way out. James Otis had not really been the same since 1769. Whether or not the assault was the cause, Otis was playing less and less of a role in politics by 1773. When Otis vacated his seat in the assembly, it was John Adams who took it over, though Adams himself would quickly bow out, citing exhaustion. William Molyneux had been a rising star approaching the Boston Massacre though he was busy dealing with allegations of fraud. Dr. Joseph Warren would make his appearance during this time and would begin to steadily grow in importance in the overall movement. Throughout the final months of 1772, following the publication of the Boston Pamphlet, towns all throughout Massachusetts issued similar decrees and established their own committees of correspondence. By the time the calendar had flipped over to 1773, everybody had once again become politically awakened as a new wave of discontent began to take hold. Thomas Hutchinson, by this point, was obviously unpopular and would spend the first half of 1773 causing himself a considerable amount of self-induced harm. Hutchinson, probably for good reason, was still refusing to call the Assembly. However, town meetings had done a good job of filling that role, though technically they were without any official power. The more that Hutchinson reminded the town meetings that they had no official authority, the more that those meetings flexed on just how much power they now actually held. If Hutchinson seems to have enjoyed prodding at the Boston Radicals, He would give them a powerful shove in January 1773. As the governor, Hutchinson probably did need to make some kind of an official response to the proliferation of committees of correspondence and the Boston pamphlet. He chose his time and place as a speech to the general court, where Hutchinson was also a judge. Had there ever been the slightest glimmer of hope that Hutchinson was reasonable, or maybe could be swayed into tacit support of the radicals, he poured a glass of cold water all over it. As he addressed the general court, Hutchinson did not lay out a plan towards reconciliation. Instead, he laid out every argument against the colonies possible. He made absolutely clear that they did not have the same rights as natural-born Englishmen because they had removed themselves from England itself. They owed complete subordination to Parliament. That's it. End of story. There was no debate. Although he did recognize that the colonial assemblies did enjoy some power, he did clarify that such power abruptly ended where it came into conflict with parliamentary prerogative. Hutchinson plainly stated, that the only result that can come from denying parliamentary supremacy was independence. Really, it is not that surprising that Hutchinson would be taking such a hard-line approach. He has never exactly given hints that he had any sympathies for the Boston radicals. His decision to outright dismiss the concerns of the Bostonians in this instance would do little but inflame the crisis it is also worth remembering now just how much things have changed from when Hutchinson first entered our story. The first time that I talked about Thomas Hutchinson was back in episode 3.27, when I discussed his plan with Benjamin Franklin for the formation of the Albany Plan of Union. The denial from Hutchinson that the colonists had certain constitutional rights struck at the very nerve. That had been openly exposed since the Stamp Act. Rather than pushing people away from the more radical elements of the movement, it served as a stark reminder of what those core grievances of this entire crisis actually were. More importantly, this would mark the opening salvo of an outright war that would develop in Massachusetts between the Whigs and Thomas Hutchinson. In May, Drain a dinner being hosted by Hutchinson for the Customs Commissioners. A militia company led by John Hancock was meant to salute the commissioners. Two of the men in the unit refused, and, following a quick dismissal by Hancock, went and joined the crowd. Busy fomenting anger in that same crowd were William Molyneux and Paul Revere. The crowd then proceeded to pelt the honored guests with mud, while shouting expletives at them. Following the event, there were more members still who voted against a measure to expel the offending members. As frustrating as this event must have been for Hutchinson, his annoyance would quickly be replaced with utter horror from what was going to come next. In June 1773, a series of letters sent between Thomas Hutchinson and Andrew Oliver to Thomas Watley, a British sub-minister, were published in Boston. These letters, written between 1767 and 1769, were highly critical of the colonists, and called on the British to take far more drastic measures. These letters from Hutchinson to Watley suggested that the Crown should take a heavy hand with the colonists, and end this crisis once and for all. In the most famous of these letters, Hutchinson wrote to Whatley about the necessity to curb British liberty in the colonies, and that, for the colony to be in its most perfect state, that there must be a great restraint of natural liberty. Hutchinson argued that the immense distance between the colonies in London made it impractical, if not outright impossible, for the colonists to share in the same liberties as those living back across the Atlantic. Hutchinson concluded his letter by stating that he would much rather see the colonists' liberties restrained, rather than seeing some kind of a breach with the British government. We will discuss the effect of all of this momentarily. However, first, I want to take a few minutes to talk about the publication of the letters, and exactly how the colonists had come into possession of such clearly explosive and obviously private correspondence. The letters, 13 of them in total, were provided to Thomas Cushing, the Speaker of the Massachusetts Assembly. Who provided the letters to Cushing, you ask? Well, that would be none other than our old friend, Benjamin Franklin, who was still in London acting as a colonial agent. Where Franklin acquired these letters is far more of a mystery, and indeed is not a subject that he ever gave any meaningful insight towards. Though if you are looking for some baseless rumor mongering, William Temple Franklin is the name that I came across again and again. Of course, it's baseless rumor mongering that is not supported by much of anything, there you go. Although the source of the letters is lost to history, a question that we can look at more closely is what his intentions were by sending the letters across the ocean in the first place. Franklin sent the letters to Cushing in December 1772. In the letter, he tells Cushing that a certain correspondence had fallen into his hands that strikes at the very heart of the colonists' grievances. Franklin enclosed the letters, informing Cushing that, well, he could not reveal his source, and further, he did not want the letters to be copied or published. Cushing could feel free to let the Boston leadership see the letters. You know, for their own interest. Franklin requested that his name be kept out of it as much as possible, and that when Cushing was done with the letters, then he would send them back. Franklin even mentions that he wishes he could make the letters public, but it is not something that he can do. That the letters must just be kept to Cushing, and the members of the Committee of Correspondence, and anybody else that Cushing felt like sharing them with. There is obviously a whole lot to unpack here. The first thing that we have to look at is exactly what Franklin was planning here. Yes, he had given the heads up that he did not want the papers to be published, but one would think that Franklin had to be thinking that this was at least a very distinct possibility. By his own words, he had told Cushing to share the letters with the Committee of Correspondence, which meant that they were going to fall into the hands of the more radical elements. Well, Cushing actually seems to have sat on the letters for several months. Once Samuel Adams had the letters, he wasted no time in publishing them. Franklin biographer, historian H.W. Brands, suggests that what Franklin was doing by sending the letters was to reconcile the Boston colonists with Parliament. Brands writes that Franklin may have hoped that by sharing these letters, it would redirect anger away from Britain at large and would instead point it towards a few nefarious actors. Franklin was in essence saying that the current tumult is not being caused by Parliament nor the King, but is rather the result of a few bad actors in the form of Hutchinson and Oliver. Franklin would have certainly subscribed to this theory that he was just attempting to improve relations. This would have been his official line on the matter. However, It has also been pointed out that everybody, Benjamin Franklin and Samuel Adams included, were well aware that Hutchinson was the mouthpiece for British policy in Massachusetts. The colonists couldn't stand the guy, and his letters were certainly distressing, insofar as they reflected the direction of British policy. However, everybody was aware that Hutchinson was not the guy actually making the hated policies. Those were being created back in London. It seems that the most likely conclusion here is that Benjamin Franklin was probably aware that when he sent the letters, they were going to be published. Again, it is H.W. Brands, who points out that Franklin was not naive to the importance of those letters to the Bostonians. He fully understood their power and what they represented. Well, Cushing seems to have listened. Once the letters were in the hands of Hancock and Adams, their publication was essentially a fait accompli. We will turn back to Franklin and the fallout for him as a result. However, before we can do that, we need to look at the outcome of the publication of the letters in the colonies. Appearing in June in the Massachusetts Spy, as well as in pamphlets, the letters spread like wildfire throughout the colonies. Within the Massachusetts town meetings, they decided, without any real hesitation, that Hutchinson needed to go. They quickly petitioned, demanding the removal of their embattled governor, as well as the lieutenant governor, Andrew Oliver. Now, Hutchinson surely did not want to be fired. However, by this point, he too had decided that it was time to go. Hutchinson had been battling for years and had been a prime target since the very beginning. Right as the colonists were busy petitioning Parliament that Hutchinson needed to be fired, Hutchinson was writing back to London that he was eager to quit his post and sail for greener pastures. These letters, rather than helping to repair the rift as Franklin apparently had hoped it would, helped to further galvanize resistance. In an era that saw conspiracies everywhere, the Hutchinson letters crisis was a tailor-made thing to invoke outrage. Hutchinson would point out in his own defense that these really were private writings, and that despite what he wrote, he never actually did encourage the British ministry to take more draconian measures. This, however, hardly mattered. The Boston leadership smelled blood in the water, and they were determined to attack. Sure, the colonists knew that Hutchinson was not the guy actually making the policies, but he had come to represent everything that they hated. He may not have created the policies, but certainly he was the embodiment of them. Ultimately, everybody's requests would be granted, and Hutchinson would be allowed to quit his position and leave Boston once and for all. Although slow travel times and the onset of winter meant that he would be stuck in the colony until the following summer. Ironically, it was the entire battle over the letters from Hutchinson that would prove to momentarily slow the response to the next, and ultimately much bigger crisis. In May of 1774, the British passed a duty on the importation of tea. Outrage over the new Act would launch the colonies into yet another round of convulsions. We are going to get into the response to the Tea Act next week. However, for the rest of our episode today, I want to spend our time introducing the Act and discuss exactly what was changing. Tea has long been a topic in our story. We saw the first tax on tea as part of the Townsend duties, and upon the repeal of those Acts, T found itself as the sole surviving duty. The duty on T remained not for any specific purpose, but rather because Parliament was desperate to save face. Economically, the Townsend duties were much more of a headache than they were worth, and nobody was sad to see them go. However, for the British it was important that the principles of the Declaratory Act be upheld in the repeal, lest the Americans get the wrong idea. The tea duty, therefore, was left intact, not because it was special, but rather because the British had to leave something, anything, in place just to prove that they could. Both under the Townsend duties and following their repeal, the colonists were paying three pence for every pound of imported tea. The East India Company was struggling heading into 1773. The company had been struggling with corruption for years, something that the British were trying hard to get ahead of. In order to battle the problem of corruption, the British decided to actually give pay raises to high-ranking officials, with the hope being that the boost in pay would quell that need to seek some extra money on the side through more nefarious means. By the time that 1773 had rolled around, however, this policy had led the company into massive amounts of debt, which necessitated a government bailout to the tune of a loan in the amount of £1.4 million. Now, understandably, the British wanted to ensure that they were going to be paid back on what was a significant loan. Therefore. They had a sudden interest in trying to find somewhere for the company to unload its tea. Europe was out of the question, as the market was already inundated. North America, however, made for an interesting option. There was no lack of demand. The growing colonies had an increasing appetite for tea. Now, to be clear, company officials were well aware of the fact that they were walking into a hornet's nest here and suggested that they sell the tea to the American colonies, duty-free. However, with the rest of the Townsend Acts already having been repealed, the North Ministry was completely unwilling to consider dropping the duty altogether. Still, though, the East India Company was not thrilled about the potential resistance from the Americans. North, unwilling to budge, did begrudgingly agree to a compromise that, he thought would make everybody happy. This compromise took the form of what would become known as the Tea Act. Under this plan, Americans would still pay the same three pence per pound duty on tea. However, North granted the East India Company a tax rebate, allowing them to reduce their prices to the Americans that they would be selling to. In theory, Well, the Americans would continue to pay that three pence duty on tea. The tax rebate for the East India Company would allow them to drop the cost of tea. Thus, the Tea Act would have actually served to reduce the overall price of tea in the colonies. North believed that this plan was perfect. The British managed to keep the tea duty in place and again prove that they could. However, duty or no duty, the overall price of tea was going to drop. How could the Americans possibly complain about lower prices? Furthermore, the reduction in price meant that the Americans would buy more tea, thus helping reduce the supply in Europe and making everybody a whole lot of money. This would have the effect of giving the East India Company a monopoly in the colonies the lower prices would undercut the smuggled Dutch tea, which would suddenly become more expensive than the legitimate East India Company tea. Why would anybody bother to take the risks involved in smuggling when the legal East India Company tea was both cheaper and higher quality? The Tea Act was, in the eyes of the ministry, a win-win proposition. Everybody was literally going to come out better off. The British would earn more revenue while at the same time not completely giving in to the colonists and repealing the final surviving portion of the Townsend duties. The Americans would see tea become cheaper, which would be applauded. Really, the only group getting hurt by this deal was going to be the smugglers. And who is going to complain about a smuggler getting driven out of business? Lord North had further hopes of success in this endeavor, when you consider that the colonists had been paying the tea duty for years, with not much more than some angry fist shaking. To be sure, there was still a very healthy tea smuggling industry in the colonies, especially in the northern colonies. However, to say that the smugglers dominated the market would itself be an overstatement. Legally imported tea, tea which had passed through customs and duties were paid upon, accounted for 90% of all the imported tea. This leaves the remaining 10% of the market to the smugglers. So it was a relatively small, though not completely inconsequential number. Of course, those numbers did change, and the amount of smuggled tea had increased during the non-importation days of the late 1760s and early 1770s. However, Following the breakdown of those non-importation agreements, legal tea imports once again increased. It is also important, for the sake of context, to understand just how big the business of tea was. In the years preceding the coming Tea Party, tea made up roughly 3% of the total value of all exports to the American colonies. Though the amount of tea smuggled was small as compared to the amount of legally imported tea, it still represented a very large amount of lost revenue. Finally, it is important to explain what is coming to understand that smuggling was not consistent throughout the Thirteen Colonies and indeed was defined by region. In the South, for instance, the colonists tended to prefer the quality that came with the East India Company tea, as compared to the smuggled Dutch tea. New York and Philadelphia, on the other hand, enjoyed a wide network of smugglers, and actually smuggled in considerably more tea than up in New England. News of the Tea Act reached the colonies in October 1773. Despite the hopes of the North Ministry that the colonists would applaud lower prices, that cheaper tea helping ease the sting that came along with the remaining duty, they soon found themselves disappointed. The Tea Act was not met with celebrations over a cheaper product, nor was it seen as being annoying but acceptable. Instead, the Tea Act would send shockwaves throughout all of the colonies, And in short order, would completely alter the landscape of the ongoing crisis. Next time, we are going to pick right back up with the colonists' response to the Tea Act throughout the colonies. There would be no doubt soon that the peaceful period that had emerged following the Boston Massacre trials was over, as a new and dangerous phase took over. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as the colonists prepare for their most dramatic resistance yet.